hear again God's word. One day, Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell Saul his father. Saul was staying in the outskirts of the pomegranate, I'm sorry, the outskirts of Gibeah in the pomegranate tree at Migron. The people who were with him were about 600 men, including Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, priest of the Lord in Shiloh, wearing an ephod. And the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on the one side and a rocky crag on the other. The name of the one was Bozes and the name of the other, Sena. The one crag rose on the north in the front of Michmash and the other in the south in front of Geba. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And his armor bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart, do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. And Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross over to the men, and we will show ourselves to them. If they say to us, Wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place, and we will not go up to them. But if they say, Come up to us, then we will go up, for the Lord has given them into our hand, and this shall be a sign to us. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines said, Look, Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they've hidden themselves. And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor-bearer and said, Come up to us and we'll show you a thing. And Jonathan said to his armor-bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet and his armor-bearer after him. And they fell before Jonathan and his armor-bearer killed them after him. And that first strike which Jonathan and his armor-bearer made killed about twenty men within, as it were, half a furrow's length of an acre of land. And there was great panic in the camp, in the field, and among the people. The garrison and even the raiders trembled. The earthquake, and it became a very great panic from the Lord. And the watchmen of Saul and Gebeah of Benjamin looked, and behold, the multitude was dispersing here and there. And Saul said to the people who were with him, Count who's gone out from us. And when they had counted, behold, Jonathan and his armor-bearer were not there. So Saul said to Ahijah, Bring the ark of God here. For the ark of God went at that time with the people of Israel. Now while Saul was talking to the priests, the tumult in the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. So Saul said to the priests, Withdraw your hand. Then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and went into battle. And behold, every Philistine's sword was against his fellow. And there was very great confusion. Now the Hebrews who had been with the Philistines before that time and who had gone up with them into the camp, even they also turned to be with the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, when all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were fleeing, they too followed hard after them in the battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle passed beyond Beth-Avon. Let's pray. Lord, just about every petition that I would make in this hour has already been made. So we simply ask you, Remember the prayers of your servant that have already been uttered, that you would bless the time when your word uh, will be opened up, and that we might see a little bit more of the glories of what you have done for your people throughout history in the person of your Son. It is in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. As we uh, return to 1 Samuel 14, we're not actually starting a new sermon, but we are continuing 
the sermon from last time due to some uh, scheduling things and, and health issues uh, on my part. It has been a couple of months, I realize. So uh, we're going to do a little bit of a recap. Let me remind you that in chapter 13, the last chapter, Saul went down to Gilgal where he was uh, supposed to wait for Samuel's instructions about how he would defeat the Philistines. And that was significant because uh, we said defeating the Philistines would sort of clear the way for King Saul and the Israelites to complete the conquest of the land, to capture Zion, and for Saul to assume his role as the mediatorial king. But first, Saul had to show that he would submit himself wholly to the Word of God, that he would not act with respect to the establishment of God's kingdom unless he had direct revelation and instruction from the Lord Himself. And so therefore, he was to wait for the arrival of God's Word through the prophet even though rendering that obedience would mean that he would have to watch as the Philistines closed in around him and his fellow countrymen abandoned him in fear. But as Saul found himself in that position, rather than trusting in the Lord and enduring the cost of obedience, Saul instead offered the sacrifice himself when he determined that God's word was about to fail. And the result was that God said through Samuel that his line would be cut off forever. And it was in light of Saul's rebellious and disobedient attitude that in the last sermon that we did, we saw Jonathan emerging as a bit of a breath of fresh air, a man who embodies all of the opposite characteristics of his faithless father, Saul. So the title of the sermon that we began last time and will be continuing today is The Justification of Saving Faith. And that is the title because we are taking note of the ways in which Jonathan's life vindicates him as a man who lives by faith. Now, we began last time by noting four obstacles that God, in His sovereign providence, had placed in the way of Jonathan, His servant. The first of those obstacles was diminished numbers. Saul had chosen 3,000 men to uh, operate in his standing army, but as the Philistines advanced, many of those soldiers began to flee. And when the time for the battle came, the text told us that Jonathan had just 600 men uh, along with his uh, father Saul at their command while they were facing a Philistine army of around 40,000. The second obstacle was diminished weaponry because even the 600 soldiers who remained did not have sufficient weapons. Uh, we were told that they had to go down to the Philistines to have what farm equipment they were using essentially sharpened because there were no blacksmiths in Israel. The text even told us that Jonathan had one of only two swords in the entire Israelite army. The third obstacle was diminished favor, because the men leading Israel into this battle are King Saul and Ahijah the priest. God had just rejected Saul one chapter ago for his disobedience, and Ahijah, as we just read again, was a descendant of Eli, whose uh, priestly line had already been rejected by God in chapter 3. So a neutered dynasty and a rejected priesthood. Those are the human leaders taking Israel into this battle. And so there was no reason to believe that God would bless or prosper them, at least based on those men. And the final obstacle that uh, Jonathan faced was a daunting geography. The Philistines are described as having the high ground. And so even if Jonathan wants to take matters into his own hands, he has to ascend that steep rocky crag and assault a well-armed foe who's going to be able to see him coming from a long ways off. So in other words, 
the text sets us up with, with this set of circumstances. There's no hope in numbers. There's no hope in weapons. There's no hope in strong human leaders. And there's no hope in any kind of geographic advantage. That is basically every natural superiority that a military might face or have, I should say, going into battle. And God has stripped all of it away from Israel. And so therefore, if Jonathan is going to act in obedience by fighting the Philistines, there was by definition only one basis upon which he could have, upon which he could have any hope in doing so, and that was faith in God to deliver him. And that's what we saw him express back in verse 6 of this chapter, where he said, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised, for it may be that the Lord will work for us. For nothing can stop the Lord from saving by many or by few. That is one of the more remarkable expressions of saving faith in the Old Testament. But as exceptional as the statement was, at the end of the day, if you just took it by itself, it is merely a statement. It was words going forth from someone's mouth. And we know that there are many times in Scripture where someone will express faith in Yahweh, but the profession turns out to be ungenuine or insincere. After all, if you take the example of Judas, he expressed faith in the Lord Jesus with his mouth and to some extent even his actions. He did leave everything for three years to follow Jesus around. The mere expression of saving faith, even in the midst of difficult circumstances, is one thing. But the justification of that faith, the proving of its sincerity, is an entirely different matter. And so the text didn't stop at merely Jonathan's expression of faith in verse 6. It goes on to give us four tangible evidences that the expression that we saw from Jonathan is genuine and sincere. And we concluded the last sermon by looking at the first two of those four evidences. The first evidence we saw was the encourageability of saving faith. Because after Jonathan expresses his faith in Yahweh, the servant, his servant, brings him verbal encouragement. The servant said to him, Do all that is in your heart, for I am with you heart and soul. The servant reinforced Jonathan's inclination to trust God, and he let Jonathan know that he would be with him no matter what happened. And right after receiving that encouragement, what does Jonathan do? He begins to act. Why is that? Because the Holy Spirit of God uses encouragement, godly encouragement, to spring saving faith into active obedience. The encourageability of faith is evidence that it is alive and active. The second evidence we looked at was Jonathan's sensitivity to the operations of the Spirit. Uh, Jonathan set up a test for the Lord. Remember, he, he and his servant said that we're going to show ourselves to the Philistines, and if the Philistines tell us to wait at the bottom, we'll know that we're not to go up. But if they call us up to them, then we will know that God is going to give them into our hand. And we noted in the last sermon that this idea of setting up a test for the Lord is not the normative way that God's people determine what they should do in a given situation. Instead, it's always something in Scripture that the Holy Spirit prompts men of faith to do in unique points at redemptive history so that God may save his people and show himself powerful. And so therefore, the fact that Jonathan did choose to set up this test shows us that he's got something within him that is sensitive to the movements of the Holy Spirit, and that thing is saving faith. Saving faith proves its existence in the heart of a Christian by responding reflexively to the work of God the Holy Spirit. Now, those were the first two expressions we looked at, sorry, two evidences that justified Jonathan's expression of saving faith. 
So then as we come to today's sermon, we are going to look at the final two evidences of saving faith in Jonathan, and we're going to try to develop the idea of the justification of faith just a little bit more. So as we turn to the text, I want you to look at the third evidence of Jonathan's saving faith, and it is the confidence of saving faith. And we're going to begin today in verse 11. In verse 11. Having recognized the Holy Spirit's special promptings, Jonathan and his servant began to act. Verse 11 says, So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines said, Look, Hebrews are coming out of holes where they have hidden themselves. And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor-bearer and said, Come up to us, and we will show you a thing. And Jonathan said to his armor-bearer, Come up after me. The Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet and his armor-bearer after him. Now, what we just read there reveals to us a twofold confidence of Jonathan's faith. First, Jonathan shows confidence in God's ability to clearly communicate his will to him. Notice, the Philistines called Jonathan to come up. That is the very thing that Jonathan knew would be a sign that God planned to give them victory. Now, if you're Jonathan, you had better be pretty confident that you have rightly interpreted the promptings of the Holy Spirit in this matter. If Jonathan is wrong about the Spirit leading him to set up this test, then the Philistines calling him and his servant up is not actually a sign that God intends to give them victory. And if that is the case, then when they get up there, what's going to happen? They are going to be slaughtered. In other words, everything here hinges on the Spirit having actually prompted this in Jonathan's heart and Jonathan being able to accurately discern God's will. And yet Jonathan is fully confident that God did reveal his will to him. And therefore, the Philistines calling him up is truly a sign from God. And so what that shows us is that saving faith has confidence in God's ability and intention to clearly communicate His will to His people. It doesn't do any good to say, I'm confident that walking in God's will is for my good, if you're not also confident that God can clearly and actually communicate His will to you. And that's one of the first things that saving faith does for a Christian. It gives them confidence that God has spoken and clearly revealed His will. That's what Jonathan is showing us. Now again... This circumstance here is an extraordinary circumstance. Jonathan had revelation that we do not have access to in our daily lives. So it would be irresponsible to come to this text and say, the text is teaching us that we are to throw caution to the wind and interpret every feeling that we have within us as revelation from the Spirit. Rather, for us, this element of confidence of saving faith is going to manifest itself in our belief, particularly in the perspicuity of the Scriptures that we will have confidence that God has spoken in His Word clearly. That is a confidence that you are going to see lacking in men who do not possess saving faith. I, for example, have seen this with my own family members. You, someone might see you rendering obedience to the Lord in a way that is costly or strange to them, and they'll ask you why, and you begin to explain, well, here's what God's Word has to say on this matter. And sometimes you'll get this response. I've gotten this before. Well, I don't know, the, the Bible can kind of be hard to understand. There, there's a lot of different interpretations of it, and I know other people who claim to be Christians, and, and they don't think that it says what you're saying that it says. Now, what is that? That's a lack of confidence that God is able to clearly communicate His will. 
And I want you to notice that when you see it in those around you. It's a sign that faith is lacking. And brethren, when you see that your natural tendency is to believe that God has spoken with clarity, then rejoice because that's what spirit-wrought faith does. Take comfort. You are just like Jonathan in that respect. Now, very often we'll read of these great lives and deeds from the men of Scripture and think, man, I'm, I'm nothing like them. No, you are. You are very much like them. Their lives were written for our instruction, and that assumes that we have something in common with them that it can, we can be instructed in. And in this case, what you share in common with a man like Jonathan is faith and confidence that God has spoken. And that's a precious gift from the Lord. That's the first element of confidence we see in Jonathan's faith. The second element of confidence is confidence to act. Flowing out of his confidence that God has clearly communicated his will is a confidence that acting upon that will is the best thing that Jonathan can do. And that's why as soon as the Philistines hail him to come up to the top of the rock, Jonathan says to his armor bearer, come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Do you see that? Confident action. God revealed his will to Jonathan. Jonathan was confident that he discerned it. And so in his mind, the most natural thing that he can do is to act on the basis thereof. And that's what saving faith confidently does. And that's what we're called to do. When the soul has apprehended what God has said, then saving faith, if it is in the heart, reflexively and immediately produces a confidence that says, I must act upon that revelation because it's what God has said. And it's not always easy because sometimes acting upon, as we've seen in, in these past couple of chapters, Acting upon God's revelation will sometimes put us in a position where we can reasonably expect some pain or negative circumstance to result. And of course, there's going to be resistance from sinful flesh. But if you have been given the gift of saving faith, then you will find alongside that, that, that initial natural resistance another principle that pushes back and says, no, this is what God has said. This is what God has told me to do. And therefore, even though it, I may fret, my, my heart and flesh may fail, nevertheless, I will act. I must act. And it's for my good. And on the whole of a Christian's life, even though there will be instances of sin and failure, a lack of full confidence in the Lord, the principle of saving faith will be strengthened over time. And it will grow as the progressively dominant force in the heart of a saint. Jonathan's confident faith is the exact opposite of his father. Notice how the two were in almost identical situations but had diametrically opposite responses. In the last chapter, Saul was staring down a seemingly insurmountable army of Philistines. And God had given Saul clear revelation that he would be with Saul as the king to overcome the enemy if Saul would simply wait before offering the sacrifice. God spoke and gave Saul clear revelation. You could argue that the revelation Saul got was even clearer than this extraordinary revelation that Jonathan is receiving because God spoke to Saul through Samuel. He got to hear words coming from another man's mouth like any normal conversation. But when the time came to do what God had said, Saul had no confidence to actually carry it out because there was no saving faith in him to produce that confidence. Then we come to Jonathan, and he too faces what are seemingly insurmountable odds, but God gives him special revelation to go up against the Philistines anyway, and he confidently obeys. Why is that? 
because his soul has been made alive. Jonathan is like a tree planted by streams of water that bears the fruit of godly action. Faith given by God is life. And things that live move and they act according to that life. That's always characteristic of God's people. So, Jonathan had confidence to act. Saul did not. Jonathan's faith was justified. Saul's is exposed. So, we come then to the fourth evidence of Jonathan's faith, and it is this, the reward of saving faith. The reward. We're going to see this begin in the second half of verse 13. And the last part of the passage that we looked at just a moment ago, we said that Jonathan and his armor bearer began to crawl up on their hands and feet. They acted in faith, and they made it to the top. So as we're following the narrative, they're just now getting to the top of this rock. And so therefore, we have arrived at the moment of truth. Because when they get to the top, you already know what's waiting for them. It's a garrison of well-armed Philistine soldiers. And this is going to go one of two ways. <coughs> Either the natural course of providence is going to run its uh, track when two men with only one sword between them take on an army of well-armed soldiers and Jonathan and his servant are going to be defeated. Or, God is going to give them victory through an unforeseen and extraordinary means. Now, every true Christian who is reading this passage would probably confess that God is not obligated by some force outside of himself to give Jonathan and his servant this improbable victory. No obligation can be laid upon God outside of himself. However, the entire point of this chapter so far is to contrast Saul and Jonathan by vindicating Jonathan's faith as sincere in light of Saul's apostasy. And so even though God is not obligated to give Jonathan and his servant this victory, consider what kind of message would it send if after God the Holy Spirit prompts Jonathan to act in faithful trust, if when he gets to the top of that rock, he was immediately cut down by all of those enemies. You would not have a strong contrast between a life of saving faith and the outcome of apostasy. And while it wouldn't be unjust of God to do that to any sinner, including Jonathan, he wouldn't be wronging them. It would leave Jonathan's faith unjustified, at least from the perspective of man's view of the matter. We would, in this text, in other words, lack sort of the ultimate vindication of the righteous, and the entire point of the story would be somewhat muted. And so therefore, when Jonathan and his servant get to the top, we read this. And the Philistines fell before Jonathan, and his armor-bearer killed them after him. And that first strike which they made killed about 20 men within, as it were, half a furrow's length of an acre of land. And there was great panic in the camp, and in the field, and among the people. And the garrison, even the raiders trembled, the earth quaked, and it became a very great panic. And behold, every Philistine's sword was against his fellow, and there was great confusion. Now skip down to verse 21 and continue reading the same theme. Now the Hebrews who had been with the Philistines before that time and who had gone up with them into the camp, even they also turned to be with the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, when all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were fleeing, they too followed after them in battle. And so the Lord saved Israel that day. In the face of impossible odds, Jonathan and his servant are successful. But what I want you to see and to notice is that the text makes very clear how this came about. 
Because someone might be tempted to say, well, Jonathan was an exceptional warrior. And perhaps he even got something of a, of a, a natural advantage over the Philistines because they may have been so taken aback that these two men were willing to, to attack an entire garrison on like a suicidal mission that, that maybe they caught them a little bit off guard and achieved a natural advantage over them. In other words, the reason for the victory may be found in some kind of temporal explanation. But the text undercuts that directly. I want you to notice the very curious wording of verse 13b. They, the Philistines, fell before Jonathan, and his armor-bearer slew them afterward. Now, I've read this story a bunch of times throughout my life, and if you're anything like me, then, very, then, then when I read this story, I, I would tend to kind of imagine, or when I thought of it, I would imagine Jonathan getting to the top of the rock and taking out his sword and charging at the Philistines and, and sort of cutting them down with his skill with a sword alongside his armor-bearer, and the armor-bearer just sort of finishing them off. But technically, the text says Jonathan didn't kill any of them. The Philistines literally fell down before him, and it was the servant boy who did the killing. It almost kind of reminds you of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane standing before the Roman soldiers, and he says, I am. And what happens, and the, and the soldiers fall back. Jesus didn't touch them. They simply fell back in his presence. Now, it's possible that the reason the Philistines fell before Jonathan is that he had cut off a leg or something with a sword as he ran past them. But I don't think that's what we're supposed to picture. The text actually explains what it was that made the Philistines fall down before Jonathan. And it wasn't his skill with a sword. Verse 15 says, There was a great panic in the camp in the field and among the people, and the garrison and the raiders trembled, and the earth quaked, and it became a very great panic. In other words, in this story, God is shaking the earth. Verse 15 is not telling us that after the Philistines were dead, then God started shaking the earth. It's explaining what already happened, and it's explaining how Jonathan got the victory over them. Why did they fall down in front of Jonathan? Because as soon as Jonathan charged at them, God began to shake the earth, which threw the Philistines to the ground. And then the servant boy went in and stuck his sword in those who had fallen and could not get up. Now think about that for just a moment. With all that in your mind, go back to the, to the beginning of this charge. The earth is shaking, yet Jonathan and his servant are not falling down. Are they floating through the air? No, they're not. What ground are they standing on? the exact same ground that is shaking and making these Philistines fall, and yet they can still run and wield swords. Everything about this is miraculous. None of it can be attributed to Jonathan's skills or to some fortuitous circumstance of catching the Philistines off guard. God intervened. God gave Jonathan the victory. It's like the Psalms. God shakes the earth and his enemies fear. And once that visual of how, how the battle unfolded is kind of in your mind, that God's action is at the very center of the victory, then you start to realize that God is actually communicating something here. That as every Philistine knee buckled under the shaking rock, and as that servant boy went and thrust his sword through their bowels, God was saying, Behold the reward of those who walk before me in faith. The dead Philistines were the reward of Jonathan's faithful obedience. Now, that opens up a little topic of discussion. And while there are many questions that could be asked about it, and there is need to bring several biblical doctrines together to balance it out, and we won't go into all of it, the Scriptures do clearly teach that God rewards the faith of the righteous. 
Consider just three verses from God's Word. Colossians chapter 3. Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive an inheritance as your reward. Paul exhorts the Christians to diligence in their labor because they will receive an inheritance as a reward. Listen to Christ's words in Matthew 6. This is sort of the, I mean, the amount of times he speaks of reward here is pretty astonishing. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and to pray in the synagogues and the street corners, that they may be seen. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Notice there three times at least. Jesus references the fact that those who are of faith and whose actions flow from that principle of faith will receive a reward. Their faith and faithfulness will be rewarded. And of course, we have that powerful but short verse from Hebrews which says, Without faith, it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that God exists and that He rewards those who diligently seek Him. This is a common theme throughout, especially the New Testament. There are many other verses. <clears throat> but just those three verses make it very clear that God rewards His people and that the rewards that they receive have a direct connection to their possession of saving faith and even the actions that flow from it. Now, what are the rewards of faith? Well, there are many. Scripture actually names several of them for us explicitly, things like the crown of eternal life, uh, the new heavens and the new earth, and chiefly, the Scriptures teach us, brethren, that God Himself is our reward. He said to Abraham, Behold, Abraham, I am thy shield and thy very great reward. God is the reward of His people, and out of that flow many other rewards. Now, people immediately have questions about this doctrine. They'll say things like, well, wait, I, I thought that the inheriting of eternal life, the new heavens and the new earth, and access to God Himself, that those are things that were won for us by Christ. Those are, in other words, they're His rewards. He earned them. He merited them. They are His. So how can they be said to be the rewards of our faith and our faithfulness? Well, it's in a sermon on the rewards of faith, so I'm not going to go into it all. But in short, the distinction is similar to the distinction between justification and sanctification. We say that Christ's merit is the sole legal ground of our righteousness and our standing before God. And yet that same righteousness, it does not remain solely in the context of the courtroom of heaven, but it becomes appropriated as our own righteousness as we are intrinsically made righteous. As Paul preached not long ago, we must have a personal, living, breathing flesh and blood righteousness with our name on it. And that is not contradictory to Christ's righteousness being the only grounds of our standing before Him. They're two separate contexts. Now, in the same way, the meritorious or legal ground or basis of our possessing the rewards of glorified life, inheriting the cosmos, victory over the wicked, etc., those are things that are won by the Lord Jesus Christ. 
and yet flowing out of that legal and forensic context into the subjective, the personal context, those same rewards, which are meritoriously won by Christ, can be considered our very own and can even be called the rewards of faith. Now, many of these rewards are things that we're not going to experience until the consummation of eternity. Christ himself even points to his final coming as the time marker for when these rewards will be experienced. Revelation 22:12. Christ says, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to reward everyone according to what he has done. And in light of recent errors that are going about publicly, that's not talking about 70 A.D., there will be rewards that come with Christ at his coming. And, of course, Jesus makes references throughout his ministry to things like laying up treasures in heaven, receiving treasures in heaven. The idea being there that those rewards that we receive are heavenly in nature. They're not going to be possessed in that full sense until we are there, even now as we walk by faith. That's why they're called heavenly treasure. So we have a clear biblical teaching that God rewards those who are of faith, and many of those rewards will be received in glory. But tying this back into today's text, what we just saw is that Jonathan's faith and faithfulness are rewarded, and they are rewarded in this age. The reward that Jonathan receives is victory over Israel's enemies. So then, does God reward faith, not just in eternity, not just at the consummation, but does he reward faith in this age as well? And the answer is yes, he does. Now, qualification. I hope that uh, as we've gone through 1 Samuel, it's been about two years now, I think I've reinforced this point from many different angles, but just remember that what happens in the nation of Israel because of what Israel was is often sort of a foreshadowing of the final state of glory. And I think we have some of that here as well on the level of types and shadows. We, in the story, we have God's man receiving the rewards of his faith and God's enemies receiving the reward of their wickedness. The man of faith is vindicated and the wicked faithless men are forever cut off. That's essentially the outcome of Judgment Day in a nutshell. So I think that Jonathan's faith and its reward is a bit of a picture of the age to come that's been brought into the present. And I would say that to undercut those who would teach that Christians should expect the rewards of their faith to manifest themselves in some sort of triumphalistic or carnal rewards in this age. But even though we may not expect the rewards of our faith to come in this sort of form, this physical triumph and conquest, while the church endures her trials of this age, and though many of the rewards of faith do await the consummation, God does give a taste of those rewards in this age. You experience the earnest, the down payment of faith's eternal reward primarily through the dealings of God with your soul in the here and now. Scripture says in Psalm 25 that the friendship of the Lord is for those who fear Him. Friendship and nearness to God, that is a reward of your faith. God told Abraham, I am your reward. And while Abraham knew, he knew of the heavenly city, does Hebrews not tell us that? He knew of the heavenly city, and he knew that that would be a part of the eternal rewards of his faith. He did not obtain that in the here and now. He was a sojourner, and he awaited many of the aspects of faith's rewards for that final day. And yet, even though he looked forward to those future rewards, he did experience the substance of that ultimate reward in this life as God walked with him day by day in communion. And so, therefore, as we await the consummation we take great comfort in the reward that God is our God right here, right now. 
So brethren, if you have known anything of the nearness of the Lord Jesus Christ and the ministry of the comforting Holy Spirit, then you can say this with confidence. I am experiencing the reward that comes to those who possess true faith. In other words, we take the reward of our faith, the fact that we experience nearness with God, we look at that and we say, that's a reward of faith right there. And the fact that it is a reward, we then turn and conclude, is part of the justification that proves that our faith is real and saving. That is what Jonathan's physical reward of victory over the Philistines typifies here. The rewards of those who by faith are in Christ. Victory over the wicked. The inheritance of the cosmos. And God is our God to enjoy both in this age and in the age to come. God delights to reward the faith of his people. So rejoice and be glad that it is so. And when you see that you are experiencing those rewards of faith, then let it increase your assurance. God wants us to have assurance that he is our God. That's one of the ways that he gives it to us. So there we have it. In the big picture, this text has shown us that Jonathan's faith is living, it's active, and it's genuine. It showed us the obstacles that laid in the way of his faith. It showed us his statement or expression of faith. And then it gave us four evidences that justified it as sincere. His faith was incorrigible. It was sensitive to the operations of the Spirit. It was confident. And it was rewarded. But now as we come to the end of the exposition, the text has one more means of driving home the theme of the sincerity of faith. But it's by way of a contrast. Because even though our attention has been up to this point almost exclusively focused on Jonathan, and he is the main emphasis and character in this text, there are a few verses toward the end of this section that sort of pull our eyes away from that great man of faith and force us to look once again at Saul, his father. We read starting in verse 16. And the watchmen of Saul of Gibeah of Benjamin looked, and behold, the multitude was dispersing here and there. Then Saul said to the people who were with him, Count and see who's gone from us. And when they had counted, behold, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. So Saul said to Ahijah, bring the ark of God here. For the ark of God went at that time with the people of Israel. Now while Saul was talking to the priest, the tumult in the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. Then Saul and all those who were with him rallied and went into battle. Now, admittedly, on the surface, you, you may not have caught how those verses prove the point that I just said. They, they almost seemed like a little bit of filler material, kind of like a, a side note that the author gives us before getting our attention back upon the main action, upon, upon what's happening with Jonathan. But these verses actually serve to confirm something very important and to further contrast Saul from Jonathan. In verse 16, Saul notices, right, the tumult that Jonathan has been causing way over there amongst the Philistines. But at first, he doesn't really understand what's, what's going on. And after counting everyone, Saul realizes that Jonathan and his armor bearer are gone, and therefore it must have been Jonathan who did something in the Philistine camp to cause this. But from Saul's perspective, everything still seems a bit chaotic, and he, he's not very clear on what's happening and what's, how it's going to unfold. And so naturally, he desires to know what he should do 
in light of what's happening over there with the Philistines, which makes this a wonderful time to inquire of the Lord and seek his counsel. But what's the problem? Because Saul did not wait for divine guidance in the last chapter before offering the sacrifice, Samuel came to him and pronounced a curse upon his line and left him to face this battle alone. So in other words, Saul has no prophet right now that he can appeal to. Now Samuel is going to come back to Saul in the next chapter, and he's going to offer him counsel one more time. So even though Samuel has not completely and finally abandoned Saul, that will come, he has left him in this situation. And so if Saul wants divine direction, he's going to have to seek it from a means other than the prophet. And he begins to do so in verse 18. Now, this verse either reads one of two ways. Either God, Saul tells Ahijah to bring the ark of God here, or he tells him to bring the ephod here. The Septuagint, scriptures used at the time of the apostles, says ephod. The Masoretic text from the Middle Ages says the ark. And people have made arguments on both sides from really going back to the time of Christ. Now, why would there be any confusion here? Well, the confusion has arisen because it says that the ark of God was here. But if you remember back from earlier in 1 Samuel, what happened? The Philistines went and got the ark, and after God killed a lot of those people, where did they put the ark? They put the ark in the house of Abinadab, right? And it stays there, in theory, until David comes along in 2 Samuel and takes the ark, and that's where the whole thing with Uzzah happens, when Uzzah is struck dead. So the ark is supposed to be at Abinadab's house, but the text says it's here in this battle. Moreover, Saul is wanting to inquire of the Lord, and the, the ephod, the priestly clothing, housed the Urim and the Thummim, right? And those were the two instruments through which you would seek the Lord. The ark wasn't necessarily a means of inquiring of the Lord. It's never designated that way. So it's possible that Saul was telling Ahijah to bring the Urim and Thummim so that he inquire of God. However, and I kind of like this proposal, others have suggested that the ark was retrieved on special occasions from Abinadab's, uh, from Abinadab's house, and that Saul was actually probably trying to use the ark and the ephod together. Remember in chapter 4, the Israelites wanted to get the ark. Why? Because they wanted to take it into battle because they had a superstitious belief that merely its presence would allow them to, to sort of wield God's power and they could get victory out of it. So it's possible that Saul, knowing he could not inquire of Samuel, sought to fix his lack of divine favor by going to get the ark and securing it for himself and by having the priest then inquire directly of the Lord through the umum and the thummim. Like I said, I like that proposal because it brings together and explains why there would have been two different ideas of, of what he was inquiring through. But in any case, the point is, Saul is trying to inquire of the Lord through Ahijah, the rejected priest. Now, in the last chapter, we noted that Saul still had a pagan conception of God. After Saul decided that he was going to disobey by not waiting for Samuel, he didn't throw away any semblance of religion and simply charge at the Philistines with what troops he had. He still felt the need to offer a sacrifice. And we said there that the text uh, literally rendered would be, he felt the need to soften the face of the deity as if uh, performing a sacrificial ritual would in and of itself call God down and obtain his favor. That's how the pagans thought of God and Saul shared their mindset. So bringing this all together, Saul now has an opportunity to show that his mindset is different, that he has repented, and that he is now possessed with true saving faith. And if that's the case, then what is he going to do in this situation? He's going to inquire of the Lord 
according to the means that God has ordained, and he's going to wait. He doesn't know whether the Lord's going to respond, but he has to simply assume that he's going to. He's going to have to wait until the Lord does respond and give him direction. The very thing he failed to do last time, wait upon the Lord. But notice what happens in verse 19. Saul begins his inquiry. He's got the ark and or the ephod, and he's talking to the priest. But before they can finish inquiring of the Lord, something catches their attention. The tumult in the Philistine camp, and it begins to increase and get louder. The Philistines are, are fleeing in all directions because of Jonathan. And the panic was undoubtedly beginning to spread from that garrison that Jonathan had attacked to the other Philistine forces stationed nearby. So now picture Saul. He's on the hill of Gibeah. He's under his pomegranate tree. He's surrounded by his counselors and his army. He's seeking to inquire of the Lord, but as he looks around, he sees all kinds of troops running in every which direction, and they're screaming, and they're fighting, and they're fleeing, and the confusion is getting louder and louder. And then some of the Israelites who were not with him previously begin to come out and join the commotion, and so the battle is growing. And he's got 600 men around him who are now looking and seeing what's happened and what, what's their response going to be. They're going to be taken up with that, and they're going to be getting excited at this turn of events, and they're going to start applying pressure to Saul. we got to go now. We've got to capitalize on this situation. The Philistines are thrown into confusion. We don't have any time to lose. But what's the problem? They've not finished inquiring of the Lord. And so now Saul is confronted with another decision. Do I ignore the chaos and the sounds of battle nearby and the men around me sort of urging me to attack now? Do I ignore them and finish seeking the counsel of the Lord? Or do I do exactly as I did last time and lean on my own understanding? You can see the decision that Saul makes at the end of verse 19. So Saul said to the priest, draw your hand. Whether it was from the ark or from the ephod, Saul tells Ahijah, forget it. We don't have time to inquire of the Lord. Take your hand back from whatever you're doing. We're done. Now Saul professed a sort of faith in Yahweh. He's using Yahweh's priesthood. He's using Yahweh's ark his Urim and his Thummim. He had accepted a position as king over Yahweh's people. He, in a sense, professed faith. He, he asked him, hey, do you believe that Yahweh exists? He's not going to say no. But when the obstacles came and the pressure was applied, his profession of faith was not justified by his life. And now for a second time in a row, he shows that God is no more to him than a mere conception. Something that's there to sort of serve his interests as he seeks his own will. But if doing what he says is a little too inconvenient, if there's too much uh, attention that needs to be paid over there to what's going on in the battle, then he doesn't have time to complete the obedience. So he tells his priest, withdraw your hand. We're not going to finish this. So there's the contrast of the chapter. Two men, Saul, Jonathan, each expresses a formal faith in Yahweh. One's faith is justified by his deeds, the other is exposed as fraudulent. And that's the essence of the doctrine that is contained in this text. Saving faith will be justified. It will vindicate itself as living and authentic. It's not a question of maybe. It's not something that only happens to the super spiritual Christians. It is of the essence of God-giving faith that it must shine forth and show itself. Today's text shows us that from the Old Testament. But the New Testament confirms this reality as well. Consider the words of James chapter 2. Good is it, my brothers. Someone says he has faith 
but does not have works? Can that faith save him? See, James there immediately tells you what kind of faith he's talking about. A faith that exists merely in expression, but is not productive of any works or fruit. Someone who simply says, yes, I believe in God, but there's, there's never even any evidence that such a belief has actually changed their life. James says, can that kind of faith save him? That one right there. James is not asking whether a man is saved by faith. The New Testament is clear upon that. But James says, can that faith, can that kind of counterfeit faith that only exists in words, can that one save him? And the answer is no. Because the faith that saves does not exist merely in words. It is a faith that is living and that produces fruit. That's the only kind of faith that will ever save a man. And then James goes on to illustrate what he means in verse 15. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed or lacking in food, and one of you says to him, go in peace, be warm, be filled, without giving him the things he needs for his body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. See, someone who merely professes to be a Christian will not produce the deeds of a Christian. It's very easy to tell someone that you hope everything goes well for them, but if you're not willing to meet the need, then your faith merely exists in words. In verse 18, he says, but, but someone will say, well, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe in God, you do well. Even the demons believe that and shudder. Now, that sounds a lot like Saul, doesn't it? You believe in Yahweh, congratulations. You're on the same level as the demons, who he will crush under his feet. Verse 20, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is worthless? Was not Abraham, our father, uh-oh, justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? Now, people read that verse and say, wait a second. I thought the scripture told us back in Genesis 15 that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. In other words, Abraham was justified by his faith. He had faith and that was credited to him as righteousness. That's what Genesis 15 says. And yet James just said, quote, Abraham was justified by works. Specifically, he points to the moment when he laid Isaac on the altar. So then, which is it? Well, guess what? The wonderful thing about words is that they often have multiple meanings. The term justify is no different. Obviously, when we speak of justification, we're usually talking about someone being declared righteous before God in the eternal courtroom of heaven. And that's the context that we, in this kind of circles, most often use the term. And so naturally, our tendency is to assume that's how the word's being used every time that we see it. But the term justify can be used in another sense, not referring to God's dealings with man before the bar of the law, but rather to the vindication of something as genuine or legitimate. For example, a man may claim, I am an expert marksman. I can shoot an acorn off the top of a barrel from 300 yards away. Any gun you want to give me, I can do it. But if he never shows you that he can do it, then his claim is merely words, right? That's what it is. It's a claim. But you take an acorn you put it on the barrel, you move it back 300 yards, you put a gun in his hand, and he knocks the thing clean off on the first shot, then guess what? His claim has been justified. It has been proven true and authentic. Now, in that example, when we say the marksman has been justified, are we talking about his standing before God? No, of course not. We're using the term justify 
in a different sense. And that's what James is doing here. When he says Abraham was justified by works, he's not talking about Abraham standing before God. That was established many chapters before. What James is saying is that Abraham's claim to believe in God from Genesis 15 was justified or proven true in Genesis 22. How? By his willingness to offer up Isaac in faithful obedience. How do you know Abraham's faith is real? Because it was justified by his works. It was proved true. And therefore, James says in verse 22, you see, faith was active along with his works. And faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that said, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham's obedient life was the fulfillment or vindication of the statement, Abraham believed God. And is, is that clear? Do you see what James is arguing there? It's very important to get that right. A lot of cults will use that to sneak works righteousness into the scriptures erroneously. There are two types of faith, one that exists in words only and one that is genuine, and it proves itself through fruit-bearing. The Apostle Paul, who we think of as the champion of justification by faith alone, he's got a similar phrase that he uses for describing what James is describing. He calls it faith working through love. Faith working through love. Faith, which justifies, then works itself out, proves itself through love or uh, the deeds of the law, if you will. Now, what James is describing is exactly what we just saw in this chapter of 1 Samuel. Two types of men, two types of faith. One that's word only and one that is living active. One justifies, the other proves futile. One brings life, the other brings death. Now, as we wind down here, go to the application. The obvious application here would be an exhortation to examine yourself to see whether you are of the faith. In other words, to examine yourself to see whether there is any justification that your claim to saving faith is true and genuine. And that's a good application. It's a scriptural one, and it's something we are commanded to do. And it's an application that has gone forth from this pulpit many times in many different forms and undoubtedly will continue to do so in the future. That's a good thing. But I'm going to take a slightly different angle on the application today. It's going to be two applications. As you're going to see, it's, it's really two sides of basically one application. And the first is this. Recognize and affirm the justification of your brother's faith. Recognize and affirm the justification of your brother's faith. When James says that Abraham's faith was justified by offering up Isaac, or that he also uses the example that we didn't read of, of Rahab's faith, which was justified by her loyalty to Israel's spies, we have to ask the question, to whom was that justification given? In other words, those people demonstrated their faith is genuine, but to whom was that demonstration made? Now, our first inclination is probably to say, well, they vindicated or justified their faith before the eyes of God. And it's natural that we would assume that because when we think of justification, we're very often used to thinking of that as something that takes place before the bar of or the eyes of God. We are justified in His sight. So when we read of our faith being justified, we think, well, that's happening before God as well. Now, I'm not going to say that there is no sense in which our faith is uh, vindicated in the eyes of God. But if we say that our faith is justified before God, we do not mean by that that God doesn't know 
whether our faith is true and living and needs to f- sort of find out for himself. That's not what we mean. And while there may be a legitimate sense in which we can speak of our faith being justified before God, I believe that faith's justification has a more immediate audience in mind, especially in James's context, and that is justification before men. When our faith is justified, part of what that means is that it shows itself to be real and genuine to our fellow men. Men do not have the ability to read other men's hearts, and so there is, in a sense, an aggravated need for us to have some way, some mechanism for determining whether someone's profession of faith is legitimate or false. We're not God. We can't read hearts. And that's what the doctrine of the justification of faith does. It provides us with a way to discern who our true brothers and sisters are. And that's exactly what James says in his letter. Again, someone says to James, you have faith and I have works. And how does James respond? Show me your faith apart from your works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. Notice the speaker in the audience. James, a man, talking to another man. He says, you show me, and I'll show you. You show me, and I'll show you. One man justifying his profession of faith to another man, and vice versa. Man to man. That is the context in which saving faith justifies itself. And once you see that the prime, one of the primary purposes of someone's faith justifying itself, vindicating itself, is that you might see and know its sincerity, then the application becomes obvious. Recognize and tangibly affirm the justification of your brother's faith. God the Holy Spirit is at work in your brothers and sisters to bring forth a stream of evidences that he has made them a new creature in Christ. And part of his purpose in doing that, there are many others, but part of his purpose in doing that is so that you might see and know that they have come to share in a like faith as yourself. And the proper response to that is not merely to make a mental note of it in your own mind and keep it there. Now, you'll do that. Of course, you're going to know and you're going to have it in your mind, but go beyond that. Affirm the evidences of faith that you are seeing in your brothers. Affirm it both to them and affirm it to others. This was the practice of the Apostle Paul especially in his letters. He says to the Thessalonians, We give thanks to God always for you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father, what? What what are we taking note of here about you? Your work of faith and your labor of love and your steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, do you hear that? Paul has been mentioning the fruit of the Thessalonians' faith in his private prayers. So he is noting the fruit of their faith in his mind. But then what does he do? He tells him about it. He doesn't keep it to himself. When he writes, he makes sure to mention that he is seeing their faith being justified. When he writes uh, to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 about giving to the saints in need, he says to them, I desire to see you joyfully take up this task so that the sincerity of your faith might be revealed. Paul wants to see faith justified in his brothers. And he always stands ready to rejoice when he sees it by praising those whose faith is being confirmed. God has given us that wonderful means. Now, how terrible would it be if there were no way to determine who was a true believer and who was a false professor for you and me? Just imagine for a second that that was an impossibility. What would that be like for you as a Christian? But God has not left us in that position. And so after we have given thanks to God for the confirmation of other people's faith that we're seeing in them, we ought to multiply our joy and theirs by telling our brothers what we are seeing in them. 
So do that. When you see real, tangible, specific fruits, mention them really, tangibly, and specifically to the brother or sister in whom you are seeing it. And take opportunities to, uh, if we can use this phrase, brag on your brothers and sisters to your brothers and sisters. Mention it. Take note that they might see, others might see, and also take note and have increased confidence that the person in question is truly a brother or sister. It will do wonders for your joy and for theirs. Now, the second application, this is the last thing for today, is sort of the, the other side of, the, of that application, and it's this. Don't flippantly affirm professed faith where justification is lacking. Now, let me explain what I mean there, because a couple qualifications are in order, and we've got to be careful. We just said that we have a duty to encourage other Christians by affirming the sincerity of their faith when we see it manifesting itself. But the other side would be this. We have a duty as Christians not to affirm professed faith as genuine when there is nothing to justify it as such. Now, this is a common situation, because we know lots of people who would say, hey, I'm a Christian, and very often in conversation they will have an opportunity to refer to themselves as a Christian or to make reference to their faith or in some way to indicate, whether explicitly or implicitly, that they belong to Christ. And yet, as we look at their life and examine it, we, we think to ourselves, there is literally no evidence to justify what this person is saying, that they have been born again of the Spirit of God. And there's a, in, in many cases, we're going to say to ourselves, there's a lot of evidence to the contrary. And so do not flippantly affirm their faith as genuine simply, because this is usually why we do it, simply for the sake of moving the conversation along or not wanting to create any awkward moments. Now, most of the time in these situations, you're not, you're not going to be tempted to actually say to the person, I affirm your faith as genuine, brother or sister. You're not, not going to come out that explicitly and say it. But how do we typically end up affirming people's faith flippantly? Well, they'll make reference to it and we'll kind of... Uh, say yes or nod our head, or we might even refer to them as a brother or sister. There are a hundred subtle ways that we might affirm their profession, but we must be careful because when we affirm someone as a brother or sister, when we affirm faith is genuine, we are making a statement not just about that person, but we're making a statement about God. We are saying God has done X in this person. We are putting God's name on something. If you say someone's a Christian, though you're not responsible for infallible knowledge, only God has that, you are saying that from your perspective, you believe that God has done this work over here. And very often do we not get annoyed, and we should, and maybe even past annoyed, angry as Christians, when we hear the men of the world violating the third commandment by constantly saying things like, oh my God, oh my God, just saying it over and over again. Why? Because they're taking God's name and they are flippantly throwing it out of their mouths to things that are either untrue or simply don't matter and are trivial. They are taking God's name for vanity. And so if we, for the sake of not creating any awkward moments with people, are willing to just sort of, even if we don't say the name God or Yahweh, even if we're just willing to flippantly affirm someone's faith, we are taking God's name up and putting it on something. And we're doing it without thought. And we're doing it, in many cases, contrary to our conscience. Now, we're obviously not talking about a situation where you meet someone who you have no, you've never met before and they claim to be a Christian. Okay, you don't have any basis one way or the other of knowing. And so in those cases, it's often okay to even have a charitable assumption about the person if you don't have any reason to question it. We're talking about situations where you know a person, you have some sort of tangible history with them, and you think in your mind, I don't believe this person's a Christian. 
be careful to guard whom you give the term brother or sister to. It's about God's glory. And so that would be the final exhortation. Just be careful with that. Don't beat yourself up over it. I've, I've done that many times in the past, right? Take it to the Lord, repent, and just ask for the ability to control the tongue and to think. Because very often we're just, we're just throwing it out there quickly because we don't want to, not only do we not want to create an awkward situation, but we just want to speak without thinking. Just be careful with those kind of things. Now, as we wind down, one of the evidences that does justify faith as genuine is a spirit of prayer. And so now we have the opportunity as a congregation, men who feel led to lead in prayer, and for those who uh, do not feel led to lead today and for the ladies, to be praying or to be listening and tangibly affirming in our hearts the prayers of our brothers. A spirit of prayer justifies faith. So let's take that with us into this time of prayer. This is an opportunity to be encouraged, to see faith justified as genuine, and to work it out our own faiths as we cry out unto the Lord. Let's thank Him that faith justifies itself. Let's pray. In trying to think of a way to prepare for the Lord's Supper and to move from the message to the Lord's Supper, I thought about something that I actually think about all the time. And it's a terrifying thing. Uh, I have been a part of four churches in my life. The first one, I was the age of some of these little ones here. When I was their age, there were people there your age and your age. They would have professed faith. Some of them are in hell right now. Then you move on a little, a little later, and I would be the age of some of you, teenagers, and there were some that were your age and your age there who professed faith, same faith. If you asked them, are you a Christian? Of course I am. Some of them are in hell right now. I think back to people that I've known that when you're young, you know, you, you, you just you look at the older ones in the church and you assume, oh, we're all doing the same thing. We're all believing the same thing. We're all professing the same thing. And then you look back after years and you realize how much of it was fluff and fake and phony. And then I wonder, now I'm a pastor of a church. How many of those this age or this age, or this age, will be here in 10 years, 20 years. Sometimes the question in my mind is not how many, but who will it be? Or how long will it be until that one actually shows forth what is already true of them? That's a terrifying thing. Now, the question is, what do you think is going to keep you from going that way? What is it? Say, oh, Christ. I believe in Christ. That's a wonderful profession. A profession of faith has never saved anyone. Professions don't justify. We, we, that's the whole point. Is We tend to think that there is a difference in substance between saving faith and living, fruitful, active faith. 
There's a difference. I can profess the faith that will justify me, but not possess the faith that actually works itself out in my life. We, we think that. It's, it's the same. It's, it's no lordship salvation. It's that whole idea. Christ will save me but someday, but not change me now. That is, that's heresy. So we, we profess. Well, oh, Christ, Christ will keep me. But you can't profess that if you're not living it. How, how do you know you have him if he's not changing you? There are some, even here, who profess to have the saving kind of faith while denying that you have that faith by your very life choices. You don't consider Christ in your choices. You don't think about what God has said. You you just do as you please. Oh, but Christ will save me in the end. As we come to the Lord's table, and as the elements are passed, I'm going I'm to take the easy route of application. Examine yourself. Examine yourself to see whether you are in faith. I hope that it terrifies you. I hope that it scares some of you into at least considering Maybe I'm not a Christian so that you will begin to really examine what's happening in your heart and what has happened. Mark chapter 14 says, As they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. In the breaking of the bread... We see Christ's body, a human body made for Him, prepared for Him, taking our place and then broken for us. Bread. We don't think of bread like this. We think of bread as a, almost like a condiment, a side. Bread has historically been the life of humanity. This is how we live. Christ is saying, Here is me for you, my life for yours. But again, you can't claim that if you don't if you believe that it's only something to come. One of these days his life will be for me, but right now my life is for me. Examine yourself. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. As the elements are passed, examine yourself, and then we will come to the table.